John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 738.1S0819, certificate number 13747. Loyalists. Oh, say, do you see what I see? Congress sitting here in sweet serenity. I could cheer, the reason's clear. For the first time in a year, Adams isn't here. This is Loyalists with a capital L. This is not just Loyalists in the general, in the sense of somebody who insists that the last season of Game of Thrones was good or liked the Star Wars prequels. The last season of Game of Thrones was good. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, that concludes <laughs> Loyalists uh, entry. It's a it's a great indie rock band name, loyalists with not with no the. Well, I feel like loyalism is a thing that comes up in indie rock fans. You know, people who think that the. I mean, are, are you somebody who thinks that only the Twin Tone replacements records were good, or would a true loyalist stick with them through the Warner Brothers records? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, for sure. Just, just the sense of being a ride or die fan of somebody. Can, uh, do you only listen to Death Cab with Chris Walla? And as soon as Chris Walla's out, it's not a it's not a band anymore. You you don't you don't believe in it. But this is loyalists in a more specific sense, capital L. And I'm reluctant to even use the name for the show because the, that's the kind of self justifying propagandizing name they gave themselves. It's the equivalent of saying pro life. Right. Which um, you know newspapers don't tend to say because again, if you call yourselves pro life, it means all your enemies are in favor of of death. All your ideological opponents just like like death. Agreed. Um, which is why all my opinions are pro life, and all my that's right. I'm just a pro good politician, and everybody who disagrees with me obviously is is bad idea. I believe that all of our listeners understand that our opinions are good. <laughs> Everyone else's opinions that don't conform to ours, even minutely, don't conform. Are bad. Here's the genius of it. Here, here's why podcasting is the perfect medium for us. Like in the far future, our opponents' ideas have not survived. Right. Our opinions, being the only ones left, are self-justifyingly the correct ones. Wild the, the most correct ones, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Be excellent to each other. <laughs> and so we don't even have to do any kind of research or, or uh, spirited philosophical defense because there's nothing for us to argue against. We're the only game in town. But what do we do about the fact that we often paper over our minute disagreements <laughs> by just not we, we we know where those uh where those 
Borderlands are, and we just kind of skate well, over. Well, you them. didn't hear me say how much I liked the post Chris Walla Death Cab records because <laughs> I knew it would be getting into into dicey territory. You know what? I like them too. No, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's. I a also enjoyed bit of, the last season of Game of Thrones. I like Game of Thrones. Bran the Broken should be the king. Would you believe I just started rewatching Game of Thrones? I. That's not such a weird thing. To, that's not an. Um, are you? Are you kidding, John? Are you? <laughs> Me? You're rewatching. You're watching the most popular television show the last ten years. Now that it's having a resurgence in popularity due to a sequel, I I, I am not a rewatcher of things right, except right, for right, Thirty right. Rock. It's the only thing I've ever rewatched. I and forgot you're a non rewatcher. I don't rewatch because I don't. You know, my daughter is life's a, too short. I'm that, I, I'm right. a non rewatcher because life's too short. Life's too short. For ten years, I've been meaning to rewatch The Shield, and I now believe I never will rewatch The Shield. There you go. I've never watched it. <laughs> In the first place, so I'm oh, I'm safe from you've that. You've still got a chance. My kid is a fast reader, and I'm a slow reader. And so when I read a book, I really read the shit out of that book. You know, like I read every word, and I'm one of those people that reads to the end of a sentence and goes, what now? And goes back to that sentence and reads it again, and then reads it a third time. So it takes me weeks and months to read books. I'm starting to see why you didn't have a, a prep a show for today. <laughs> and she... We'll read a book in two uh, two days or a day. Just propelled through it. Yeah. And I'm like, honey, what can you possibly have, you know, that was a 300-page book. How could you have possibly read it in two days? But this started when she first started reading. So, it, so I watched her evolve as a reader, and what I came to understand is then she rereads it. And she'll read a book three times. Each time getting a little more. Yeah. And I don't know what, she- I don't know how she's scanning over. But this was one of those, like, do you have an inner voice or not kind of things where I started to ask people, are you a fast reader or a slow reader? And it's crazy how many fast readers there are. I'm, a, are I'm a fast reader. You're a fast reader. Yeah. And do you, the, do and you and reread? My, I think my retention suffers. As a kid, I would reread. I would read my favorite books all the time. Now, not so much, just because of a, on Life's Too Short grounds. Like, I've only ever reread two or three books, uh, and it's because I... I don't know. I spent so much time reading the Quran in, in prison. <laughs> That's right. The the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. Do you feel like uh, your kid has good uh, retention, or, a, or do you think she's kind of glossing through it? But you know, later she'll get more out of it. And... No, it's incredible. She read A Wrinkle in Time, and she read it. A really, Wrinkle in Record Time, and I, and she read it really fast. And I was like, Look, when I was your age, I read A Wrinkle in Time, and it spooked me and it messed me up in in weird ways. So I, you cannot possibly have read that book in two days. Yeah. Tell me the story of A Wrinkle in Time. And she broke it down for me in... In freestyle rap. And it was complete. She had she had the complete book, at, you know, but wasn't spooked by it. Hmm. Like, she just retold the story as a kind of... She retold it as a, as a narrative. Um, and I, I wonder, you know, second, third time through... And I don't, really, I don't know why I was spooked by it. No, it's a, it's a creepy, it's an unwholesome kind of book. All those are, I think. Yeah. But maybe, you know, people are different. Maybe she's immune to that vibe and finds something else in it. She's a dark girl. She says it all the time. Like she, she has a dark soul. Yeah. She's like, she, even at 11 years old, she's like, I think I'm going to be goth. And I'm like, please, no, not goth. The only thing worse is dating skaters. Don't say that if you're a parent. That just, that just makes them <laughs> zero in on goth. I know. But um, so you're a fast reader. I guess that makes sense. I am, and I do find that like my retention suffers. But it really is just kind of like I'm propelling through this book at a certain speed, and if something's good enough, 
It'll grab me. I see. It'll okay. Book, grab me, grab me, grab me. Not this scene. Not this scene. Hey, this is pretty good. So, so when you read Tolstoy, you're just like flip, flip. I, flip, I actually flip. like reading older stuff because it does force me to slow down a little, just because of the, you know, in, especially in translation, it might be a hundred year old translation, and so the voice is a little antiquated, and it's probably good for me. What about when somebody describes a summer day for fifty pages? Uh, yeah, I really. <laughs> <laughs> the thing the thing about a book like that is I keep going through it at a constant speed, just taking nothing out of it. Like, when is this part going to end? Right. Like, you know, there's 150 pages on Waterloo at the beginning of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, and I read every word, <laughs> and I don't think I remember any of it, but I, I put in my time. You yeah, know? that's right. If you ever want to know about Waterloo, you and I can talk offline. My dad turned into a re a, a, a nothing but a rewatcher, I don't know, maybe in his 50s or 60s, where he pretty much only enjoys the media he is Really? Already enjoyed earlier in life. Yeah. No, I mean, not to a full, not fully. I mean, I see him playing Skyrim and I assume he wasn't doing that in the fifties, but. <laughs> Is he, has he rewatched Gunsmoke all the way through? <laughs> well, I mean, he's definitely, I mean, even when uh, those people, even when the boomers do watch new content, it's basically rewatching because they're watching NCIS or, oh, or some yeah. show that's the same every night, you know, like right. let's see Mark Harmon crack the case in 48 minutes. You know, that it's basically rewatching. Yeah, I guess that's So right. I'm, I'm eagerly waiting to turn rewatching years old and then i'm finally gonna see the shield again and figure out what all of dutch and claudette's b stories were that i've forgotten it'll, Watching be, the, it'll be new to me the first episode of game of thrones i was stunned at how much happens in the first episode like like john snow is spoiler alert he's already headed up to the to the wall episode one brand's already fallen off the you know, like everything's already set in motion. I guess at the time they had 2,000 pages of stuff to get to and they were like, we got to we gotta move. Yeah. Later on, maybe they were regretting that. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I was like, I thought all of that took the whole first season to unfold. But anyway. Well, eight minutes later, I have not said actually what the loyalists should be called. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, they should be called the Teddy Boys. They're, yeah, they were called mods and rockers. Their opponents called them Kingsmen or more familiarly Tories. Kingsman was not a very good movie. I don't. <laughs> are you going to rewatch the Kingsman? <laughs> I don't think so. Or the the sequel or the prequel? So I mean, the Kingsmen they... were also the uh, the Shakespearean troupe that performed his plays. But this just meant people loyal to the House of Hanover. Um, so are they the are they the the uh, the precursor to the the modern Tories? No, I mean in the sense this is a new world usage of of Whig and Tory. Whereas Whig meant a patriot, somebody devoted to, in this case, the cause of American independence. Oh, this was an American story. Yeah. The Tories are the sticks in the mud. Not Tory in the modern sense of a British prime minister who's like 70 points underwater in the polls (laughs) or whatever she is right now. As we record this, I believe she's in a near tie with Vladimir Putin. She's in a statistical tie with Vladimir Putin for likability. Even though this episode will come out just a matter of a few weeks. Yeah, you're going to hear this in three weeks when Boris Johnson is prime minister again. (laughs) And the rest of you in 2,000 years when Boris Johnson is on all the money still in the ruins. No, it's going to be whatever his name, Jeremy Corbyn. Who's who's Prime the new Minister who's again. the new Jeremy Corbyn? <clears throat> um, I am the new number two. Well, you know, there it's a Labour candidate, right? Isn't, yeah, isn't there about to be a Labour government? I shouldn't. Well, I don't think so. Yeah, but Nobody but yeah, like if labor. well, just because of the weird the oddities of their parliamentary system. If there were an election today, there would absolutely be a Labour government. But I don't think the Conservatives are going to call for that snap election. Um, no, I was in Boston last week. Oh, right. Uh, speaking <clears throat> at a university. You sent me a picture uh, standing on uh, 
uh, standing on a smoot made. I wandered into smoots. I started the day looking at Christian science stuff very eagerly. I finally went to the Maparium, which is their uh, hollow earth stained glass globe that you can stand inside because that was what Mary Baker Eddy wanted. Yeah. On right. her deathbed, she was like, put tourists inside a stained glass globe and don't give me aspirin. Did you, did you feel healed? Uh, I really enjoyed the vibe of the of the Christian Science Mother Church. It really reminds me. It's it's basically Temple Square in Salt Lake City, but what if it was in Boston in this kind of massive, um, kind of Romanesque building with a brutalist um, extension on it? But are there there aren't areas behind successive curtains that you can't go unless you're a thirty third no, degree? No, it's not about the uh, religious practice there. Although they do have services there, it's just because it's it's got a tourist facing plaza. Then it's all the Come learn about our history. Oh, yeah. The 18th, the nineteenth century weird part. Don't don't worry so much about it. Here's some. Here's a newspaper we used to publish. That was a good newspaper. It's a, they said they have they really lean into the newspaper. Have you ever been to the Mother Church? I have not. But you know, my family was very close with Kay Fanning, longtime editor of the Christian Science. Movie. I remember when we did the show. Yeah. So. Uh, a lot of a uh, lot of you can a lot of interactive things where you can click on a front page of the Christian Science Monitor and it just shows a progressive headline like Mandel is free. Berlin wall comes down and you're like, wow, the Christian science monitor sure is, you know, always on the side of right, but it's, you know, they just leave off all the headlines. Like they have almost every year. And then there's no 2016, 2017. I was like, Oh, good thing. Nothing politically happened in America in 2016 or 2017. That might angry up tourists. Let's leave those years off of the display. Anyway, I just started walking kind of randomly toward the Charles river, not realizing I was about to hit smoots. Yeah. So I took pictures of smoots for the Patreon. Um, oh, you put them on the Patreon. Well done. Yeah, you got to pay to see me with smoots, John. Yeah, so what, what like not, not every peon gets to see me <laughs> taking a selfie, an awkward selfie with trying. You know how hard it is to take a selfie with, um, with graf- the ground? graffiti on pavement? Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, the next day I had the day off and it was just a beautiful fall day in Boston. Foliage turning red and yellow. Mm. Just gorgeous, gorgeous weather. And you know what I had never done is I had never walked the Freedom Trail. Oh, yeah. Which is the core of modern Bostonian tourism. Right. One if by land, two if by sea. They cleverly have laid a, a series of bricks. The future will not know about this. Boston, the seat of many historic um, events in the founding of our country. Will be well underwater. Uh, it will, is now underwater. <laughs> <laughs> the, there's a line of bricks that kind of leads you on a two or three mile amble through the city. To Depending on which brochure you have, somewhere between 15 and 30 historic sites. I've never done it either. I've see, I've walked over the Freedom Trail and gone, huh? That's something to look do. Look at one these day. losers listening to this guy <laughs> in a tricord hat. <laughs> yeah, you you kept crossing it. No, I, I studiously walked the whole thing from Boston Common all the way. You cross the river again up into Charlestown and wind up on Bunker Hill. Yeah, where there's a big obelisk. Um, but it's good. It's uh, you know, if you want to, I went into the Old North Church. One if by land, two if by sea. I which was it? Went aboard the. It, it turned out to be two spoilers. Two, 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 two if by sea. I like it. You think this might come up? That's why they. That's why they. They ran up or they ran around. Are you afraid a man on a horse is going to run up to you and be like, John? Which is it? I got lost. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh, I went aboard the USS Constitution. Uh, you know, but there's a lot of there's a lot of history, graveyards, and the oldest office building in America, which by the way now Chipotle. No. The brochure doesn't say. The brochure just says, this is where Thoreau's publisher was. It's the oldest office building in America. It's now Chipotle. I just learned that Chipotle, Chipotles, are not franchised. 
Really? It's it's the largest non-franchise fast food uh, business in America. That means corporate owns and operates all of them. Corporate owns and operates every Chipotle. Which explains the high level of quality and the total lack of food poisoning. That's right. That's right. Uh, it was actually really fun. I mean, a lot of these were sites, uh, you know, you, you kind of vaguely breathe all this in through an American childhood, especially if you're, well, I mean, maybe Boomer Earl, or maybe we just missed it. But you don't remember the, the Bicentennial. That's true. <laughs> and I do. There's lots. Of, there's still bicentennial stuff on the trail. There's like this is where Gerald Ford hung yeah. hung this historic thing. Um, Did they, were there any Dennis the Menace uh, comic strips? So because he really celebrated Dennis the Menace, really talked about the bicentennial Syn- a lot. Syndicated feature newspaper comic strips always love that kind of thing. Yeah, I bet you could read. Eight months of croc that was just about the bicentennial, <laughs> even though that doesn't make any sense in, yeah. their, in their foreign legion milieu. BC was <laughs> was kneeling in front of the North Star and also with an American flag. BC stands for bicentennial <laughs> Christ. Uh, so you, to you, it's a Dennis the Menace based holiday. Well, I mean, I just remember nineteen or nineteen seventy six like so profoundly because we celebrated it all year in school. Like we were always doing. There were tall ships. Yeah, and we we would do. All of our all of our schoolwork had some connection to the bicentennial. So, and that was what second grade for me. Well, I mean, that was kind of a foundational thing in American education for centuries, and you still see it today when you go to Disneyland or Disney World, and you're like, "Oh yeah, there was this Johnny Tremaine ass uh, part of our culture that just kind of disappeared." And the you know the bicentennial was kind of its last hurrah. Yeah. I have a historian friend who believes his personal theory is that it has nothing to do. It's the civil rights movement, actually not for woke or critical race theory, you know, or whatever the BS explanations are, but just because suddenly schools had like a new set of, of heroes fighting for American ideals. That was that, that they could, that they could point to. And it was in within living memory. Like this is Rosa Parks. This is Dr. King. It didn't have to be like, let me explain to you. Samuel Adams or Paul Revere, there's a horse. You know, all that kind of stuff starts to seem very pleasantly old-timey once there's a new kind of founding narrative of what our principles are. You did go to school during a time when history class got to the 20th century the last week of school <laughs> yeah, exactly. and just raced through like, and then there's World War One, and then World War Two, and then... It was over. As late as high school. I was taking AP U.S. history, and like I think World War II barely happened. Yeah, right. We won, it turns out. Uh, spoilers. Yeah, I, I, I definitely had multiple history classes that that ended at World War II and only covered that in the last Probably teachers. I mean, teachers' natural slowness, but also just love of Civil War and Revolutionary War stuff. Right. You know, they, they linger on the pilgrims that they fetishize. Well, and it got really weird. After the Korean War, like right, especially it? in the seventies and eighties, like wait a minute, this is very ambiguous. Where everything before it was clear the Union had won, but it was just funny, kind of wandering around Boston, seeing these tour guides in tricorn hats. You know, I would I would sidle up to tours and get all the get, oh, get all the, the scoop f- without the free scoop without paying. I was like, hey, that's Benjamin Franklin's dad's grave over there, and I didn't have to pay this <laughs> dude with a bell. $28 plus tip. <laughs> Do they see you when you're on the fringe and, and, and scoff at you or glare at you? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I didn't follow them around, but I there's see. a, it was a beautiful sunny Sunday in October and there were enough of these guys out that like, no matter which side I went to, somebody was there being like, this is the Parker hotel. Ho Chi Minh and Malcolm X both uh, worked in the kitchen. 
Oh. And I was like, damn, that's pretty good. I mean, together? What are they doing in the kitchen <laughs> at the Parker Hotel? <laughs> they were actually like busboys. Um, but, you know, just it, it all seemed so antiquated. Like it seemed like a, a, a bygone America, not just in the sense that it happened hundreds of years ago, but just in the fact that we had last thought about tea parties and Boston massacres and midnight rides so long ago that right. it's it's not really celebrated so much. And, you know, because of the fact that a lot of those people, it turned out, owned hundreds of enslaved people. Um, you can see why Although the- Although fewer in Boston. Why the pivot, pivot to civil rights. Yeah, fewer yeah. in Boston, obviously. Yeah, I think um, there's a Howard Zinnification of it, too. Like, once, right. in the 90s, once you read A People's History of the United States, it's hard to, it's hard to sing- well, shot heard round the world was the start of the revolution. You know, like you, you kind of lose the, um, yeah, the hagiography. As we'll see, a lot of the a lot of the history that got told about that time for centuries was a little bit selective and blinkered. Um, but uh, you know, since omnibus is often about forgotten memory holes of history, maybe the ultimate American Revolution memory hole is that it was effectively a civil war. We find ourselves in a divided nation where a lot of people are thinking about, thinking back to the 1860s, you know, what would it look like again where a third to a half of the country is really ready to pack it in over slights or imagined slights. But there's two thirds or at least a half of people that are like, it's fine. Right. Um, or, you know, and even some of even some of that side is actually, you know, is militant for other reasons. But But there's a big chunk of people who are always going to be like, well... Well, no, I mean, I, I'm with you, but, you know, sure, a lot of stuff's broken, but what, you want to start a new country? That's bananas. That's that's crazy. Right. And that was, there was plenty of that during the Civil War, and we don't think about it, but... The, the Revolutionary the, War. No, I, I was going back to the Civil War, but then, you know, there was plenty of people, even in the Revolutionary War, who were like, no, 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 I mean, it would be insane to try to launch a armed revolution against a European monarch and his armies for various reasons um, will lose. You know, there's been an unsuccessful Jacobite rebellion just a few decades ago. The King's not going to lose. And also like what, for what, for representative democracy, that's not a thing that exists. This all just seems science fictional. The idea that you would give up your, your prosperous situation in the biggest empire on earth to, to try a crazy new utopian scheme like, like democracy. Well, and also the Southern states and the Northern states already hated each other, felt very little common bond and had completely different cultures and right. desires. This right? idea that we were all Americans is bogus because we weren't, we were all British subjects. We, I don't know. Yeah. They were all British subjects. You. Yeah. If I had been, I, I'm, I'm the reincarnation of, uh, I don't know, some page boy. Alexander for, Pope. For page boy for no, John you're, Hancock. You're an elf. That's been widely established one of john hancock's sheep um all these people did not think of themselves as americans who were getting put down by a foreign government they thought of themselves as british subjects who were um getting sick of it and wanted to do their own thing and that's a pretty big ask um it turns out that as many as what would you say you've, you've probably heard of the idea of people who were loyal to the crown during the revolution, right? Or, or in the, yes. at least in the times leading up to it, like famously Benjamin Franklin's son was the Royal governor of New Jersey and stayed loyal to the crown. And I think hopped about to back to Britain at some point. What's your sense of these people? Do you, 
who were they? Well, it's the, it, as you say, history has glossed over them because um, in our retelling, they all ran to Canada, right? And that's why there is a Canada. It became a... Um, that's part of what happens <laughs> at the end of the story. Yeah. Oh, sorry. No, no, but you're right. Like, yeah, the, the existence of Canada is largely, as a cohesive nation, is largely credited to this influx of disappointed losers oh I, I thought it was the deep love that the french had for the english they were like can't we make a country together uh but i but you have to assume that yeah new york city was not united in its desire to leave the the warm embrace of the mother country half the people there must have been like come on that's going to screw up trade it's going to disrupt you know it's it's already making cocktail parties untenable like because everything about my life is pretty good. You know what's not good? Like a war in my living room, it, occupation of my city, disruption you put of my any twenty people together. They're not going to agree even on whether to put cheese on hamburgers, let alone, uh, you know what the fate of the nation. You know, we think of this as a real grassroots movement where everybody on the continent was eager to throw off the shackles. John Adams at the time famously said that a third of America's a third of Americans or you know colonists supported the patriot cause. A third were loyalists to the crown, and a third were neutral. So it's a pretty, you know, even set of buckets. We now think that Adams was maybe overestimating the amount of loyalty to the crown, but there probably were as many as half a million people living in the colonies who did not want uh, a revolution and a new government and a new nation. Half a million people in a, in a in the colonies that had a population of two. Point five million. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, it's about. It's on the order of I don't know, fifteen to twenty five percent of white Americans at that time, and the stereotype we have of them is kind of what you say: people who did not want to see their income or elite status threatened. You know, in hindsight, we've painted all these people as kind of psychophantic, uh, uh, elite, yeah. money grabbing merchants who were like, "Hey, hey, hey, are my servants gonna?" Uh, leave me if there's a war. They're always portrayed as effete, right? And you know, with the with beauty marks and you just saw Hamilton, right? <laughs> there's a, there's a scene where um, a guy in, in the I, when I saw it on Broadway, it was like one of the few uh, unambiguously white, white, white members of the chorus plays this loyalist guy who gets up on a box and gives a stirring speech about how only the rabble would turn against their king, and then Hamilton appears and totally like stunts on him and does like a freestyle rap around his right his lyrics and you know based on i'm sure a real rap battle that probably took place in the streets of boston <laughs> but that's the idea we have of these guys they were all just kind of prissy priggish british snobs right who were like oh boo hoo you know what if i can't get my kippers because there's a war um and in fact it was not even a coalition it was like a crazy uh scattering of different kinds of Americans that largely uh, opposed the war and not all were men of property. Um, you know, when you think about, there just weren't enough men of property in America to make a difference. The majority of loyalists would have been small farmers and artisans and shopkeepers just because that's who the nation was. But a lot of them had professional jobs that they knew would have been threatened by war. You know, if you're a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer, you do not want to lose your government that's throwing you work. Right. Um, Although doctors thrive in a time of war. Maybe, yeah. They don't get paid as well. Right. They, those guys wanted to just um, give people uh, poultices for their gout. You know, that's where the real money is. The, but, there were, uh, but the Scots-Irish, right? They were poor and hated everybody, but hated the, hated the government in Pennsylvania 
as much or more than the British, right? Sure. There were plenty of like little small marginalized groups who were against um, independence for their own reason. Um, on the frontier or what would have been, then been backcountry kind of Carolina and Georgia, there were plenty of people whose number one concern was we need a strong colonial army protecting against, you know, protecting us in our wars with the Native Americans. You know, that was their number one threat to their security. And also, as it turned out, the number one threat to Native Americans. But um, from, their, from their point of view, it was like, we need redcoats in the hills or else we're going to get overrun. Weirdly, those people are really setting the tone of American government right now. <laughs> except they, this, they're except clogging the, the airwaves. Except this time they're like, now, no, we need a new government. We need to go poop on Pelosi's desk ASAP. Right. Um, but you're right. Back then, these were the same people who were, um, and they would, uh, these were the ones who actually kind of founded their own little militias and started to get into skirmishes with their patriot neighbors. And there actually were battles in Carolina and Georgia that were basically Americans against Americans. It was neighbor against neighbor, civil war style stuff at the battle of Kings mountain in Carolina, the, the four Goforth brothers faced off. It, just on different sides of the battle, and three of them were on the loyalist cause, and one of them was on the patriot cause, and they were all killed. Um, and there were, you know, multiple of these Civil War kinds of stories in the in the backwoods down there. Um, a British officer of some kind, brigadier general, maybe named Tarleton, formed a legion of loyalists, which sounds like a pretty cool yeah. wrestling tag team or supervillain, whatever. Where he, you know, he got a lot of these angried up guys who were getting harassed by their neighbors and getting their barns burned down and said, Hey, are you going to stand up for this? Like, so yeah, your state legislature way over there in Charleston says you're Americans now, but come on, who's with me? And they, they fought tooth and nail against their neighbors, against their own state. It turned out they had mutant powers and they all lived in a big school. Sadly, no, many died, but, um, but they were also just the most brutal fighters because they were, they were not schooled in, you know, they were kind of doing the same kind of skirmishy guerrilla tactics that we now credit the Minutemen with, uh, jumping out of the hills. After their leader, Tarleton, came to be known as Tarleton's Quarter. That was a term for uh, even once their enemies asked for quarter, you know, even once their enemies surrendered, they received Tarleton's Quarter, which was to get bayoneted. Ah, so that's, that's, that's the worst kind of quarter. That's no quarter. I think that's the, it's like a Hobson's Choice, a Tarleton's Quarter. So you had professionals with jobs who would have, you know, whose life would have been threatened. The interesting thing is all these educated people, they were good enlightenment Lockean guys to the degree they had that, that education. They were like, oh, absolutely. Stamp Act sucks. Right. Intolerable acts are, I would say, intolerable. <laughs> it's right there in the name. Harumph, harumph. Like these people were all 100% in lockstep with their patriot neighbors about the king and the parliament. Right. They were just like, hey independence can't be seized you know like this is this is just gonna this is the worst possible outcome for our goals they were saying independence can't be seized it has to be granted or independent can't be seized we need to reform from the inside i think more it would have to be i mean i think probably the second and then the first you know maybe there's for a lot of them maybe there's an eventual goal of sure you know maybe we shouldn't be but i think the first goal is we need to lobby the crown peacefully you know because you know uh cool minds will prevail and we'll see that these levies are unfair. And if we could just stop, if we could just stamp out these little massacres that keep happening in the streets of Boston that, that are getting everybody angry up and getting all the torches and pitchforks out, 
this can all be avoided. You know, in a lot of ways, this sounds more like it sounds less like left versus right in America today and more like um, leftists versus liberals. Yeah. Where kind of everybody agrees on the same progressive goals, but you've got some people who are like, hey, 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 easy up on the rhetoric there. Sure. Buddy. Sure. Work within the system. Work within the system. I, I wonder if Machiavelli's The Prince was in wide circulation or whether it was still hmm. sort of in an untranslated state because all of that is, you know, if that was a widespread text, you know, I can, you can imagine that Sun Tzu wasn't in everybody's right. bookshelf, but, but was Machiavelli. It's kind well, of, he's, well, what would the effect have been? He's pro conniving. Does that mean he would have been more like, you can, you can totally, uh, Subvert this system from within. No, I think he would say... Or would he be poor revolution? You cannot grant freedom to someone because the grantor still retains the power. Right. To be granted freedom is no freedom. You have to seize your freedom. And to be clear, I bet a lot of these loyalists would have been fine with that. Yeah, as long as the king is treating us square, as long as we're Jake, as they would have said... You know, it's fine. We'll, we well, can be part of the, a, we can be part of the British Empire. That's not a jazz age term <laughs> to be Jake. No, people back then were always being Jake with something. Wow. It came from the Jacobites. Oh. No, no, that is not true. <laughs> um, there were other groups. It, you know, uh, funnily enough, the Germans and the Dutch of of Pennsylvania and upstate New York were extremely pro House of Hanover. I think largely because they were ethnically German, like. Yeah, we've got a good German king. The last thing we want is these ethnically English and Irish and other folks overrunning us. You're here. So, just, like, still. just like today. <laughs> <laughs> That's you and I as proud Welsh people, <laughs> hoping to avoid the tyranny of the Welsh, or the English and the Scots-Irish. So there were huge swaths of New York and Pennsylvania that were basically enemy territory during the revolution. Like, well, you don't want to go there. Um, you know, everybody there is kind of quietly pro George the third. Have you got any Dutch in you? I don't think so. Cause I have, a, I have some of that. You're tall. 1620s Dutch in New York, uh, ancestry. And it always astonishes me how out of step it is. And they were from what we think of as like the, the colonists. Or not out of out of step, but just other. Yeah, they just had their own little. It was not a melting pot at all. Right. It was like here's a little island of of the Netherlands, right in the middle of the. Well, but then it became a real melting pot because they had that Dutch, like, hey, you know, as long as it's business, everybody's welcome. So, but it was not a. It was not a Brit. Well, it wasn't. Yeah, the melting pot of the. Like linguistically and culturally, they retained a lot of their. And and now that's mainstream American culture. We're we're even blind to right. what we think of as down home American Yankee stuff is actually straight up Netherlandish culture. Yeah, uh, you know all the Stuyvesant houses, all the tulips that we uh, our lovely tulips here in Washington <laughs> State. The uh, Quakers tended to be anti-war. You know, we think of them as on the side of good progressive causes, but in this case, they were like. We should not be fighting for this questionable political outcome. Right. Um, down in Georgia, there were so there were so many people who. I mean, here's what happened during the war. Like, uh, once independence was declared in July 1776, Lexington and Concord had happened. It was pretty clear which way the wind was blowing. And you know, even if a, a quarter or a third of America was loyalist, 
they just kept their heads down. You know, they kept it to themselves because people were getting tarred and feathered just under suspicion of, of not being true to the new, newly borning nation. And that was something you could do. You just didn't, you didn't hang any flag out front and you drew your blinds when people marched by and hoped that nobody would put you to a loyalty test or loyalty to the revolution. Do you think any of them had like the fake, fake flags? Like, woo, yeah, <laughs> go, go, go get them at Saratoga, I hope. I mean, I can't help but make the, the connection to what's happening in Ukraine now. Yeah. And you just think about it over and over. Like you see those videos of the Ukrainian citizens moving, or I'm sorry, Ukrainian soldiers moving into uh, reoccupying territory and all the residents come out and hug them and they're all flying flags. And it's, it's tear, you know, tear inducing, but. But you're saying a third of those areas are <laughs> ethnically Russian and well, not, not stoked about the new tanks. Who knows who, who, uh, right. who the people are that are just staying in their living rooms and not rushing out. Like if you watch the footage of the Russian tanks moving in and you look at the crowds welcoming them, it's probably maybe, uh, there's a, a pretty good overlap of people, right? Uh, yeah. Hard to, hard to know. I mean, it's so, it's so interesting to, to be cons- readily consuming the propaganda of one side and, and utterly rejecting the propaganda of another side. It's, it's impossible to discern. I mean, the thing about, you know, you look in a mirror on this stuff about the loyalists during the revolution and you realize, honestly, to me, like their cause actually seems the most sensible. The loyalists. Yeah. I'm not the one out here saying America's deeply broken to the barricades. You know, I'd be like, America's deeply broken. I'm going to write a letter to my, to my congressman. I feel like in a matter of, of decades, we could, we could incrementally take really chip away at this problem america's deeply broken i hope someone files a lawsuit (laughs) temperamentally you know and uh, you know and i'm you know by the same token i'm economically comfortable i'm not the one already um living and dying on which student loans get repaid or whatever so by virtue of that privilege i'd probably be very much in the loyalist camp i'd be getting tarred and feathered no can let me tell you about Squarespace. Okay, I'm all ears, John. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform for building your brand, the Ken Jennings brand, Ken Jennings Inc., Inc. Ken as, Jennings as TM, and growing your business online. Now, I know you think you've got it made, Mr. Hot Stuff, but are you growing your business online? I don't have a beautiful website. No, you do not. Now you need to this is stand not my out. Beautiful website. Stand out from all the other Ken Jenningses. Your dad, for one, with a beautiful website, you can engage with your audience and sell anything: your products, your panties, content you create, even. And I know you. I know this has an incredible appeal for you. Your time. My time is limited, John. So is. Your time is money, Ken. Is Squarespace money. is Squarespace a good, efficient option for somebody like me who doesn't have a lot of time and expertise? Like, like, could I just? Are there templates that will just get my site ready to go in no time? Squarespace has best-in-class templates, and they keep adding more. Now you can just browse the category of your business, which in this case is game show host. Let well, me let me click through here, Mister Man. Mr. Man. And that will help you find a perfect starting place. You can customize the templates to fit your needs, but they will give you the framework that just works. That sounds perfect, because I used to work in web design, and I found it to be kind of a headache. It is a headache, but whatever it is you're making, doing, or selling, Squarespace has 
all the tools you need to get your business off the ground. Like e-commerce templates? Like what if I, do I, could I have like inventory management? Uh, Where you're like stacking software? your used underwear to sell? I just don't want to write my own shopping cart on my own checkout and my own payment stuff. Like that's all included in Squarespace? Ken, it's all right there. <gasps> Let's say you're starting a business that's by appointment. Yes. Uh, I am going to have people uh, come to my house yeah. and I will- uh, Fondue party. Give them a foot massage. Well, guess what, Ken? You can also add online booking and scheduling to your Squarespace sites. It's already there in the template. That sounds fantastic. So head to squarespace.com slash omnibus for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code omnibus to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. 10%. Oh, boy. Thanks, Squarespace. During the revolution, it was funny, you know, the... The British would have frequently retake cities. You know, they would retake Savannah or Charlestown or New York or whatever. And it didn't matter tactically because most of the population was rural at the time. You know, you retake a city and big deal. 90% of, of, of white America then is, is living out on farms. So tactically, that doesn't change your control over the country politically. But within the city, suddenly it was like, hey, where are my loyalists at? And all these people would be, you know, would be, round, would be rounded up to, you know, help run the the occupation efforts, they'd have positions within the government or within the military, you know, they'd, they'd get their, they'd get first crack at the supplies and they'd get their possessions back. And because there were a ton of confiscations, you know, as soon as, um, first informally, like even before the declaration had been signed, um, you know, there were mobs tearing through Boston saying, Hey, I heard this guy's, you know, this guy won't take down his line in the unicorn. And they'd, you know, they'd, what steal the silver? Steal or? somebody's silver and tapestries, oh. or 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 dem- burn down their barn, or whatever it was. And then that became by force of law after the Continental Congress declared independence. Suddenly, if you were actually an out loyalist, you couldn't own property. All your stuff was getting confiscated. Um, we've avoided one of the largest groups of loyalists just by the numbers, and it's maybe the most interesting case and one that I didn't know about because historians basically ignored it for centuries. Servants and slaves were loyalists. Were uh, extremely loyal to um, to the Tory cause, and there are some good new 21st century histories of this. Uh, but for hundreds of years, it was kind of ignored because on both sides of the political spectrum, it was unpopular to talk about servants and, in particular, black slaves being enslaved people being. Um, opposed to independence on the aboli- you know from the abolitionist point of view in the 19th century nobody wanted to remind anybody that these you know these great new people who had done so much for the country actually had largely you know because you're, you're really kind of appealing to a white northern audience by pointing out the nobility of the uh, of the oppressed well christmas africans i mean we right we, we talk about him a lot so those are the stories you hear but in fact it was much more common for these people to be like hell no i don't i'm not loyal to my owners you know like this is bull. Sure. Um, Although this is pre-abolition of slavery in the British Empire. Yes, but there's some interesting asterisks there. Um, there had been a case in the mid-18th century of a man named James Somerset, who was born in Africa, brought to Virginia and then Boston as a slave, and then followed his uh, owner back to, back to London, where his owner then baptized him. And uh, because... Baptism often accompanied manumission at the time. Somerset began to live as a free man. His owner later decided, no, you know, his putative owner later decided, 
no way and took Somerset to court being like, I'm a British subject. This dude is property. Somebody tell him his place. And the court kind of surprisingly found, no, if you baptized him and, you know, he's been living this way for years, you know, it's kind of like a eminent domain issue where yeah. uh, this, this is guy's a free man now. And it was a very limited finding. You know, the court was really very clear to say, you know, it's just because of these unusual cases, these unusual facts of the case that we find that James Somerset is no longer a slave. But it was widely reported as a court case finding against slavery. And word got around. Even in the colonies, word got around that, hey, did you hear about this guy, Somerset? Like, there's a, there's a British legal case saying um, this guy got away for a few years and now he's free. So, so this is mid-18th century, so pre Yeah, this any is of this. around the time of the revolution. The slaves already, you know, there's kind of a widespread belief among enslaved people that uh, the British are better on slavery issues. Oh, I see. Oh, and I didn't finish my thought before. Even, from, even though the abolitionist side kind of ignored this history because it didn't make enslaved people look like good, noble American patriots, um, from the other side, people who were more... Uh, less sympathetic to abolitionism, their histories often omitted slavery in this area altogether. Like you would think that, you know, it was like, a, you know, a million people basically go missing in a lot of these histories. There's a famous 1891 Harvard case. Um, in November 1775, a British governor in Virginia named Lord Dunmore announced that there would be freedom for all slaves who escaped from their masters and joined up with the British. Oh. And, you know, subsequent historians have said, you know, relations between masters and slaves were so pleasant oh, yeah. in Virginia at this time. Li- were, are, uh, slaves were pretty happy. These are literally the words of a, like a leading Harvard historian in 1891. This was the kind of mainstream history that American students were dealing with was like, it was also good and benign. This isn't just like covert and gone with the wind. This is genuinely what historians were saying. That uh, Dunmore's invitation generally fell on dull, uninterested ears. Wow. So he really conveys not just that the masters are great, but the enslaved people are just a bunch of a bunch of dimwits. Well, you have to wonder how the information was translate tra- transmuted in the sense that like how slave did the slaves get that like, word? Hey, let me show you the newspaper. But there must have been a grapevine because yeah. uh, slave enslaved populations did hear. Hey, if we, you know, word got around. This is a lot easier now. All we have to do is get behind British lines, and as those lines of engagement ebbed and flowed over the course of revolution, there were a ton of runaway slaves. Maybe, um, what is this number I have down? Maybe 100,000 people? Is, could that be one in five American slaves? Half no a million kidding. people? Um, actually sought escape and sought refuge uh, under the British aegis at this time. The story is often told in terms of a, of a, sl- a sla- enslaved uh, man born in Gambia named Harry Washington because he was one of George Washington's slaves. He was brushing horses in the stables at Mount Vernon when he hears, hey, have you heard what Lord Dunmore just said? If we can just get, you know, across the river or whatever, we're good. And he immediately takes off, you know, despite despite General Washington at the time saying things like, you know, this is all good, Dunmore's propaganda won't work on our happy, happy population of workers— in fact, he was privately writing to his brother, like, this is going to be a nightmare. Like, if they get a taste of liberty, they're never going to want it back. Um, so Washington takes off and joins what's called the Black Pioneers, a, a unit of the British 
army, a British militia organized as support troops against the colonialists during the revolution. Uh, it turns out that Washington was very unhappy with his new post. The black pioneers ended up doing, they were basically garbage men. Yeah. It was right. basically kind of support work meant cleaning nuisances from the street. He went from brushing horses to shoveling shit. That's exactly right. Um, but that's a state of affairs that lasted throughout the revolution. And when Cornwallis finally surrendered at Yorktown, it got even more dire because suddenly thousands of enslaved people are like, oh, this is our last chance. Um, we need to either get to the French. Um, now, there was still slavery in New France, of course, on their plantations. The later, I think later on, Robespierre would ban slavery. Napoleon briefly brought it back on the sugar plantations and then... Uh, and then uh, abolished slavery again. But at the time, slavery was not allowed in European France. So I think a bunch of these people were thinking, look, if I can just get on a boat, I'll be, you know, I'll be a street sweeper or a shoe polisher on the streets of Paris, but anything's better than this. Yeah. Um, so people trying to get to French lines or trying to get behind English lines being like, hey, is that offer still good? Like, uh, how do we get out of here? Um, so by local, by um, contemporary accounts, herds of Negroes, that's the quote, headed out through the Cypress swamps away from their masters, hoping to get to freedom. And, you know, of course, many of them, most of them did not. Many were caught. There's an awful case of a woman who was caught who gets lashings or order. Then before the wounds can be healed, uh, her master orders hot embers pressed into the, yeah, I know, into the scars so, you know, by the strongest possible terms, the slave owners were really hoping to keep their population at home. But And how, how did the British, as the British retreated onto their ships, did they take a, por- a portion of... It's a Saigon, it's a Saigon-like scenario where everybody's trying to get to the ports, got to get to Savannah or Charleston or New York or whatever it is before the last British boats leave, Um Pregnant women are running through the forest, hoping to get there before they can get captured by, you know, and suddenly there's an army of slave catchers now, um, hoping to stay ahead of them. But also they don't want to give birth too fast, because if they can give birth in British-held territory, they'll get this coveted BB stamp for their baby, you know, like born behind British lines. Oh. Um, because as part of the the armistice negotiated, uh, one of the terms was that these these formerly enslaved people who had been freed by the British would be allowed to board ships in many cases. All of this is happening in the colonies below the Mason-Dixon line. Right. Right. There's not, you know, you this all was precipitated by your visit to Boston, but there was not a huge slave population in Boston. No, but let's see at the time. I mean, I assume enslaved people were still accompanying their masters North. It wasn't like the situation decades later where if you could just get across a certain river you'd be good right, right. i mean right. i think there were kind of broad but there were free protections blacks in new for, york and yes. in boston and, yes yeah. yeah there were some and uh as a result when these when these newly freed um black people got on these boats headed out um washington had ordered that a book of negroes be kept the Book of Negroes. Yeah, no longer in print, I think. <laughs> huh. uh, which would actually keep track of, hey, uh, you know, tell me your name. Where did you... The idea was that former slave owners could receive compensation at some point from the crown. Oh. If we were going to seize their, you know, if we were going to look the other way while their property heads out. And did the British just 
first dock in the Bahamas and kick everybody off? Or did they really go back to London? A lot of people wound up in the UK. Uh, I mean, some of these people, a big percentage of them just became part of that wave up to Canada. Um, You know, after the war, um, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the US population took off. They were like, no, thank you. We were always loyal to the crown. This is no longer Britain. Let's go to the land the British still hold. So suddenly... Um, somewhere Within between 20 miles of the American border, right? 60 and a hundred, <laughs> just like they live today, <laughs> somewhere between 60 and a hundred thousand people suddenly find Nova Scotia, very appealing, Interesting. which back then would have included everything down to New Brunswick, I think. Um, and it was a weird vibe up there because the people who had already settled there did not like or want them there. Um, a lot of them wound up in Quebec where they would, uh, they were actually ordered by the governor of Quebec. They would get like a, you know how like you can get like le- initials after your name uh-huh. um, to show some kind of order of merit in the British Empire. The governor of Quebec ordered that all these um, loyalists coming from what were now the United States would receive UE after their name because they were United Empire loyalists. And for decades thereafter, all the a lot of the best families would proudly put a UE after their name to show that they had been against the cause of American independence and were therefore good citizens. Um, In the South, thousands headed south into Florida, which was then held by the Spanish, many into the Caribbean. The Spanish, famous for their abolitionism and And the rights of man. Good treatment of ex-slaves. Uh, same in the Caribbean, As a, but you're right, you know, because of that, many of these um, thousands of freed blacks who'd gotten aboard the British ships ended up heading north, you know, the British were like, well, what are we going to do about this? You know, now that they weren't a propaganda piece anymore, the, you know, the British military didn't, yeah. and the empire did not care about these newly freed slaves. They ended up dumping a bunch of them on, in Nova Scotia, basically on land that nobody else wanted. Everybody, you know, a lot of other people got free land grants. You know, they would, the British offered free land. You know, they wanted to get their good people out and keep that elite mercantile class functioning in British Canada. So cash, three million pounds in in, uh, British money and free land were given out to give these people a new start. But not, as you'll imagine, the free slaves. They were kind of put on the bad soil that nobody wanted in Nova Scotia. And 1,500 of them formed, including Harry Washington, founded Birchtown. But they got is there. It, is it still a majority black town? It would be a great story. It would be yeah, a great story. It would. No, uh, they were. They got there so late in the year they couldn't plant crops, and it turned out to just be an even worse version of all the terrible Jamestown and Plymouth stories, where there's nothing to eat and people are killing their dogs and cats to try to make it through the winter. Um, as a result, a lot of those people ended up, including Harry Washington, ended up in the next repatriation scam. I mean, effort, which was. Let's get these guys back to Africa and solve the whole problem, um, which is something that's an idea that kept having currency for the, well, you know, maybe the next century. Yeah. Um, but at this time, it was particularly crazy because there was still a slave trading uh, no! industry. So, yeah, let's just put these people right back on the West African coast. There was no Liberia. What yet. could go wrong? Yeah. So all these people got dumped in Sierra Leone and immediately, as you'd expect, the local Slave trading tribes found them, and a lot of them just went right back to you're kidding to Caribbean or New World slavery. Um, so they I would think at least could not catch a break. Their understanding of of English and their American roots would have made them slavery entrepreneurs themselves. 
I wonder if that did happen. Taking over the slave trade, like, no, 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 here's how it actually we, goes. We've seen a lot of the inefficiencies, and we, we, at this point, we know which side of the ledger we would like to be on. Right. I mean, you could hardly blame them. That, that, that's an unwritten history I'd like to know more about. I mean, the people are talking about it, and I mean, you get a lot of these internet edgelords who are mad about that Viola Davis movie, The Woman King, because oh, I've, I've, did you follow the discourse? No, uh, uh, my daughter's mother uh, just went to see it and said that it was very good and I exciting. Saw it, I saw it last week. It's really good. It's it's um, there's a lot of you know kind of training montages and it, you know it, it kind of works as a war movie, um, but apparently the tribe that's depicted there, the Dahomey, were actually the ones who were... The reason why they're the prosperous ones in the area is because they were the ones profiting by the slave trade. So, And wh- often these brave women warriors were like being exercised by the king in defense of their slave trading prestige and prowess. And what was the edgelord hot take? Oh, just that, oh, Hollywood wants you to like this movie because it's got women of color in it. But guess what? What? They're all actually the bad guys. Oh! Uh- um, it was a pretty superficial take. But 10 to 20% of the white residents of North America, of, uh, of the former British crown colonies there, took off. They did not want to take off, eh? live in America. Yeah. That's where that came from. That's, do you think that's why the, the current Canadians are so polite and apologetic? Because they're the ones who are like, mm, no, no, thank you. We don't actually, mm. you know, we'd be better off maybe without all this independence. It's it's fine. It's fine. You guys can do that. We're just gonna go over here. I have a couple of friends that live in Ottawa, who I'm on a little text thread with them, where they're saying that they don't want to live in Ottawa anymore. They they feel like because the culture of Ottawa has gone into the garbage dump. And I need to know more about the high point of Ottawan culture, maybe well, to understand this. Yeah, I mean, I, all of my visits to Ottawa, it was it was just as as plain as. Uh, as oatmeal with no sugar. It just looks like a government capital, you know? But now I guess it's, I don't know what the problem is. It's not, you know, honestly, I don't understand Canadians uh, when they talk. It's, it's very, or even when they text. Like the vowels or like their, their thought process. Yeah. Just the, just, you're not sure if they're sentient. Oh no, no. I'm I'm like, (laughs) so are you mad about, what are you mad about? And then Uh, they're like, oh, I'm not mad. It's like, well, wait, you sounded mad a second ago. No, no, no. Never mind. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. You almost scratched the surface and got the real. This is like um, some Star Trek Alien of the Week thing where like in the first act, you're like, what is going on under the surface with these people? But you have not yet discovered the roiling. You know, they've got a computer in a cave telling them what to do or whatever. I know that I know Canadians get upset. I've seen it. But but then they immediately they they back right off so it might be yeah it might be that there's a computer under a cave in Ottawa that's telling them all what to do it could be that they were the ones that didn't get upset about taxation without representation it's and then fine. it's just at, through the process of of selective breeding they've just become less and less uh able to be mad but think about the loyalists you wouldn't be for these guys either like when you see people on cable news who are like wearing tricorn hats and being like the IRS and the government is unfair to me. I'm starting my own country. I, here's, a, here's a new flag I made. You know, you and I are never like, yeah, yeah. These guys know what's up. Well, no, but you know, the thing about the, uh, what, we would, what we would lovingly refer to as the radical left is that they also are 
ready for a revolution and believed that they would be the triumphant sure. class. Well, you know, we've got 78% of the economy and we've right. got all the knowledge workers. and Zero of the guns. <laughs> I think they're assuming they would keep the armed forces. Yes, right. A, uh, I think a misunderstanding. As we all see in the Western Hemisphere, you know, the armed force is always on the side of the... Well, and it's funny because I, I think that the... That the uh, the misunderstanding is that the armed forces are intrinsically conservative, which in a way they are. But like having met a lot of military people, I don't think that the problem is that they're all Tea Party kooks. I think there are a lot of smart, like moderate liberals in the army. It's just the intellectual property of the flag, the constitution, which. That's going to be used by whoever's in exactly, yeah. and the left is in a in a moment right now where they're like uh, they're rejecting all of that intellectual property because uh, you know because they find that it is connected to distasteful ideas in the past. So they're like, we need a new constitution. The problem is the army answers to the constitution. So the people on the right who have never even read the constitution are like the constitution. If we surrender it to them without a fight. That's why you see people putting the American flag in their emoji, but then you click on them and they've also got, they put the American flag emoji in their, in their social media heading, but then you click on them and they've also got pronouns or whatever. Oh, good. Yeah, they're, we're they're, right. I mean, I, let me just advocate reclaim that, the flag. that people who are on the liberal side of the spectrum not abandon the intellectual property of the United States of America. I feel like we're good. It's the other people that have like stars and bars and uh, and uh, coil. Don't tread on me, snakes on the back of their trucks. The 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 uh, they're the ones like blue lives matter. They're flags. the ones picking the failed flags. I mean, the blue lives matter one is smart because it does you know it's a at least in monochrome it reminds you of the American flag. Yeah, right. Yeah, if it, if you have a Confederate flag in your emojis, are there even Confederate flag emojis? Ooh, I don't think so. That's if I type racism on my iPhone, what will it autocomplete with? Well, what it'll do is you'll, you'll start getting Google ads for things that you <laughs> for don't racism. want. For racism. The thing about um, all these people, including a huge chunk of this elite mercantile class, big plantation owners and so forth, clearing out to Canada, was that suddenly the playing field was leveled after the war. Hmm. And there was, uh, you know, there were a, a few decades where it was a great time to be a striver in upstate New York or, you know, plantation Virginia or Carolinas or whatever, because a lot of the old money had cleared out. And, oh. and, and so all the, all the, um, all the fine old families of your part of America were gone. Sure. The fancy, the fancy, but slow witted ones. Right. And now you could be the new Mayflower people if you, if you moved in. So there were, you know, a couple of decades of kind of like the equivalent maybe of post-war Eisenhowerian prosperity yeah. where, you know, a striver could really pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, it's funny because there's all this legend of the first families of Virginia, right? It's part of the American, particularly the Southern origin story of the country. The, the first families of Virginia and they're some countable number and they all intermarried with one another and the Washingtons are among them. Um, but it had never occurred to me that that, that, the, that list of first families was culled at some point to eliminate the ones that had actually been among them and and now you know uh, decamped the ones who took their ball and went yeah so it's not home at least to quebec 1790 they took that roster and crossed a bunch of names off of it 
Um, yeah, when the revolution comes, John, are you are you headed for Quebec, Nova Scotia? Do you have a place in mind? Prince no, Edward Island? No, I don't want to go to Quebec. I I think I'll go to Alaska. Oh, where, yeah. Where I will be a member of a royal clan, an, an ancient storied family. And, um, of course, global warming will make it uh, also a temperate paradise there. Yeah, and no Celine Dion music. It's perfect. And that concludes Loyalists. Entry 738.1S0819. Certificate number 13747 in the omelet. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, get off of it immediately. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell what you? What are you thinking? I'm back on it all the time because of the because of the war in Ukraine, and I'm such a fanboy of... I like, of, how, I like how you're going to blame the war in Ukraine on all your problems. It is. Well, of course I've gained 10 pounds. It's the war it's in Ukraine. It's the war in Ukraine. I'm so, I'm so uh, fascinated by uh, fellas and HIMARS that I, that I have to look at it 50 times a day. But you don't have to look at it. You can go back to your regular lives, as I hope to do one day soon. Uh, but while you're there, you can check out uh, at Omnibus Project, at Ken Jennings, and at John Roderick. It will seem like at John Roderick isn't very active, but I'm lurking there. And Ken, you have stopped being as nutty, right? You've, you've straightened up now that you're a major media figure, a national figure. Uh, I would say I'm on Twitter quite a bit less. Yeah. Part of that for reasons of um, self-care. Yes. But also, but also, yeah, like I'm, I'm now speaking for a major media franchise. But finally, you're practicing self-care after all these years of me trying to get you to read The Secret. Yeah, you and I should go get mani-pedis. <laughs> uh, you can email us. And Mindy Jennings will read it at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. And then the ones that are interesting, she'll show to Ken. And then the ones that... I actually read them all. People now, because you always do this shtick, people now email us and are like, hey, Mindy, could you tell Ken? (laughs) (laughs) And then only rarely does Ken forward me one. And it's usually somebody saying, "Um, actually, there are four engines on that airplane. And, and I'm like, you think I want to read that crap? Don't I get why any should, emails that are like, John, you're amazing. Why should I have to read that crap? Wedding proposals. Send all your emails about how, how John is amazing. I will. I promise to forward those along. Thank you. Uh, you can mail us actual things. I was wearing that satin jacket that came in the mail the other day with the uh, the the beer label with a giant oh, yeah. elk on the back. Yeah. I found it in the closet and I was like, who left their jacket here? And then I pulled it out and I was like, oh, right. And I put it on. I wore it all day and I, w- I felt super cool. Uh, so mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You, it sounds like you're opening mail over there. Uh, I am, but the whoever sent this, I believe, sent it straight from Amazon and did not. No note? Did not include. Oh, no, there is a note. Here we go. Oh, Tim wants us to celebrate our 500th episode with a fun book if you type the word 500 into amazon you can see a bunch of options so he sent us his favorite 500 godzilla facts a book self-published by james egan a guy who looks like a guy you'd expect to be self-publishing books about that's kaiju that's just as interesting and looks just as good as all those books about seattle where it's like the history of (laughs) rollingford take a walk through ballard (laughs) Uh, here's what we're going to do. You need to name a number between 1 and 500, and we will hear the corresponding Godzilla fact. 272. Oh, that's a terrible one. 
It actually know? is. Here's fact number 272. Terror of Mechagodzilla 1975 was the last Godzilla movie of the original series before it was rebooted. See, I didn't know that. Did you know that? No, I didn't. See, we've learned a lot from fact number 270. All right, what's your number going to be? Uh, 108. Let's see. At one point in King Kong vs. Godzilla, four octopi attack Kong. Hot air was blown on the octopi to force them to move. Oh. Oh, real octopi. Yeah. But we say octopuses because we, we understand that that's... The Greek root is not blah, blah, blah. Right. Octopodes. After the octopi finished their scenes, they were released back into the ocean, except one who was eaten by the crew. Oh. See, that doesn't happen on a Tarantino set. No, I wonder if they rolled the dice on it or they just picked the fattest one or what? The most delicious looking Or maybe yeah. the one that was not actually very good in the movie. Like, yeah. this guy was blowing all his cues. He's stealing focus. He's going to be sashimi. All right, what's uh, 333? Fact number 333 about Godzilla. The tagline of Godzilla vs. Destroya 1995 was... Godzilla dies. Wow. But is that true? Is that true? Uh, apparently not, because he came back in uh, 1999's Godzilla Millennium. So, I mean, he can cheat death, perhaps. Sure. Makes Godzilla, it, who? Godzilla makes a deal with Satan. If he can fight King Kong and, uh, you know, and Ghidra and uh, all them. What's Godzilla, the name? Mothra? Godzilla, Godzilla, Godzilla. Surely he can stand up against Satan. Thank you for sending that, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Um, if you would like to uh, hang out with other futurelings, you can. Uh, they are on the internet. You could probably go on the internet and actually put together a uh, like an in-person futurelings hangout somewhere. We talk about Godzilla facts at the bar. Yeah, we've learned that there are futurelings almost everywhere. So even if you live in a small town somewhere in Western Australia, if you put the word out, I bet you'll find another futureling that would meet you for coffee now whether or not you get along i can't say whether or not there's any chemistry or attraction between you probably not a lot a lot of uh, misanthropic weirdos listening right now that's right it's very it's always (laughs) unlikely that any two people will fall madly in love a lot of cranks like call drogo and the khaleesi or khaleesi she's not the khaleesi although that is a title right she could be the Khaleesi. She could. Call Drogo and you Khaleesi. You should rewatch this show and, and get more uh, get more intel on that. You know, the thing about uh, Khaleesi is she said, look, I don't want to just be Call Drogo's uh, concubine. I'm his wife and princess, and I'm going to flip him over and do some kissing on him. And uh, boy, is that a hot scene. Uh, episode one or two. Right away. It's going right away. You're like, this is a that, sexy show. That dude's about to get gold on his head. Is uh, why are you calling her Khaleesi instead of whatever her name is? Daenerys. Daenerys can't Targaryen. We just, can't we just call her Daenerys? Well, because she starts calling herself Khaleesi, and that's what oh, I see. It's Jorah, Jorah uh, uh, Homegarden says. Use people's chosen names. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She she says I'm sure Khaleesi. His name, I'm sure his name is Jorah Homegarden. <laughs> well, Jorah, uh, what, 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 what? He was Jorah of the, the Homegardens. Uh, Jorah yeah. Mormont. There you go. Maybe. Yeah, he calls her Khaleesi, and uh, and so you know. That must be her preferred name. He's kind of a cult member, though. Because she's not like, I'm, you know, I'm reinstituting the Tigarian. Anyway. Is this your determination to make make this the one outro that no one (laughs) makes it to the end of? (laughs) And if you want to support the show, which I hope you do, verily forsooth, go (laughs) immediately to patreon.com slash omnibus project. 
Was this a uh, fan-suggested uh, show, or did you come up with this on your own? It was not. This was me wandering through Boston, wondering, oh, of course. wondering about all the anti-loyalist slurs I was hearing from the tricorn hats. Yeah. Oh, they were slurring the loyalists. Rightfully so. Well, they just mostly get left out of the story, you know? Like, if John Adams thought a third of the country was on the other side and they never get mentioned? They're still around. They're still there. When you meet people, they're hunkered down. Yeah, look them, look them up and down. You know, if European American. Hey, what do you think about the Boston Tea Party? And see what they say. Exactly. Hey, you fired up about Christmas addicts? Did did it uh, did it make sense to you to throw the tea (laughs) in the pond, or did you feel like it was a waste of tea? Uh, So yes, support the show there at Patreon.com/slash Omnibus. Hey, let's take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the future of Omnibus in the year 2023. Yeah, there are going to be, there's going to be one significant change, and it will maybe startle our listeners and at a, first. And annoy them. Uh, but I think that it will, in the long run, be something that um, that is good for the show and good for everyone. John is going to get a Roomba, and he's going to talk about it a lot. Every time we're going to do a Roomba <laughs> ad at the start of the show that lasts for 20 minutes. We've had a lot of concern from listeners saying, hey, if Ken's now got a full-time job in LA, is this bad news for Omnibus? And the answer is yes and no. I have to say that when Ken got the got finally tapped after everyone... Everyone was, else uh, was... Uh, <laughs> destroyed by fire by dragons that but also you know two years after everybody else understood and agreed that you should be the host (laughs) of jeopardy when they find when jeopardy finally agreed ken moved a big golden throne into our recording studio (laughs) and now he sits a full foot higher than me and it does affect it's in the the shape it's in the shape of an emmy it's very uncomfortable (laughs) to sit on (laughs) we got um oh my god when you get an emmy you are going to be so intolerable you're intolerable already, but... Have you not seen my Emmy? That's why I'm intolerable. You have an Emmy? Yeah. When did you get an Emmy? Did we not talk about this? I had a, I had that BS producer, consultant producer credit, oh. and the daytime Emmys will just send Emmys out to anybody with any producer in their name because the daytime Emmys were largely financed by statuette purchases. Really? Yeah, the show, like Young and the Restless would be like, okay, we need 68 Emmys, and they'd be like, sweet, those are $800 each. And that's a lot of what funded the daytime Emmys. This is why daytime so they're not, they're not em- picky about Emmys it. are not. Can, if you're if you're if you get an EGOT, but it has a daytime Emmy, you're you have an asterisk by it. Probably E asterisk got because I I the, down there at Como TV, you know I, I went through their studio one time and there were like forty Emmys in a case, and I was like whoa, and then somebody like leaned over and was like yeah they're daytime. Those are, um, I mean, a lot of them might be, are there, there might be like regional Emmys. Oh, even, even so worse. It might be even lower. I'm not sure. Is it like the regional Tonys? How did I not see the Emmy? Is it, oh, it's, it's, it's tucked in behind the key to the city of, of Syracuse that you have on your. That's not my mantelpiece now next to those, uh, uh Matryoshka dolls I didn't give you. Uh. I'll send you a picture. Anyway. Anyway, so let, let's uh, let's cut to the chase. It's too late now, but let's let's try and cut to the chase. Like, we got behind on Omnibus this summer when we were traveling, and usually we get back ahead in the fall, but with all the TV commuting I was doing, we are still struggling to keep our heads above water, which means that Omnibus is going to continue in 2023. That's the good news. Yay! Um, but the only way to do it is to do it as a weekly show. Um, so there will be one omnibus a week beginning in january hopefully that gives us time to keep ahead of the show and make sure the shows can be long and rambling 
uh, for the foreseeable future and not time constrained because we were really not we're having a hard time figuring out how to do two a week yeah it was beating us up because ken was gone and then you know all it took was that uh, that i was gone to throw us completely yeah as long as you never left yeah we were okay but sometimes i leave sometimes you leave Sometimes I just show up so drunk we can't even record. Sometimes you're walking across Europe and I have to do both the voices. I whoa. I uh I want to say to the listeners, fear not every time I say to Ken, you're not going to leave Omnibus, are you? He gives me a very stern and sincere look and goes, "I love doing Omnibus. I'm never going to quit doing Omnibus ever." I'm not fleeing ever, to Nova ever. Scotia. When we are 75 years old, we're still going to be meeting in this bunker. And recording this show, even after I'm a multi, multi, multi-millionaire who's feted at all the uh, all the network TV parties. I feel like at one point we were like, are we going to keep doing Omnibus? And I said, well, if we don't, we'll just, um, we'll probably just like meet for lunch once a week and do this anyway. Yeah. So why not record it? <laughs> exactly. Hey, Ken, let me tell you all about Laika, the dog that <laughs> went to space. So that's beginning in January. Omnibus will end its bi-weekly, what do we have, four or five-year run? Five-year run, I think. Yeah, um, and I, I and imagine... And we'll begin a new weekly life. There are, a, maybe the majority of our listeners struggle to keep up with a two-podcast-a-week schedule. Who does that? Well... Who I mean, does that? Who does I, two a week? We're insane. Probably people... Nobody does... Nobody records two podcasts a week. But, you know, there are listeners that are on a weekly commute. That where the commute is an hour and 13 minutes long. Uh, but also, yeah, people put us on uh, to play in the background while they have sex with their spouse. But you can put on an old show for that. It might make the sex better. Right. Maybe not more intense, but maybe warmer, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, more intimate. Our cadence might have been different. Like the, there might be somewhere I've had a lot of coffee and you're feeling really jazzed and the tempo is a lot are you saying that's better for sexual congress or worse? Some kinds. You know, there are a lot of different varieties of sex. Somebody needs to index the shows according to cadence. Yeah, right. If that's what you're interested in. I'm sure that there is a computer program that can take spoken word and like attribute a, yeah, a, BPM. a tempo to it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so don't be scared. Don't be sad. We're going to once a week. It's going to be great. This is what keeps Omnibus going. And we definitely want to make sure that happens. And all we're doing is just becoming a normal podcast and not one that is like insanely hard to make. Our previous uh, Omnibus on Speed podcast will end in December. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that catastrophe that we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.